0: Can you hear me now? All right. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically chapter 12 to 15. And more specifically, we're looking at the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 to 15. Today is week two. Last week I posed a question. And I want to put it on the surface again today. All of us, I think, by virtue of being here, Want the Holy Spirit, or at the least are interested in things spiritual. That by virtue of being here, I think it evidences that we're looking for more of God in our life, God's Spirit in our life, or trying to figure out who He is and how He works and what He does and what it means to be a part of Him. What if the fullest expression of God's Spirit is not found individually? but is found instead collectively. That's what 1 Corinthians is about. Corinth was a church divided. Different people saying, we don't need you. We're better than you. It's not worth the effort. We can have a far closer relationship and feel far better inside on our own. They were separating They were pulling at the fringe of who they were as a body. And they were fragmenting as a church. I can do it on my own. My way is better, easier to separate. If you get this, you get what was going on in the early Corinthian church. Paul writes this letter called First Corinthians to this church pulling at the seams of each other, trying to show them a new way of spirituality, Jesus' way of spirituality, and that a life with Christ and the fullness of spirituality is not an individual experience, but the fullness of it can only be experienced collectively now those of you who have read this letter before those of you who have been to church for some time those of you who have kind of swum in the Christian stream for any length of time you've come across 1 Corinthians 12 and that's where we're rooting ourselves here again today we're taking the back half and Paul comes up with this metaphor for this collective group of people in Christ by his spirit called the body Christ's body the body of Christ a lot of us have heard it right? I think so many of us have heard it so much that this idea of being the body of Christ has actually become a cliche. There's this Christian philosopher, his name is Dallas Willard. Um, read anything he's ever written. And he has this line that, that, that stuck with me. And he says this, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Let me say it again. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Here's what he means the more you become familiar with something, the more you cease to understand what it is actually saying. Because in the repetition of it, the familiarity of it, the, the, the resonance with it, you go on autopilot. You assume you know the answer to the question already being asked. Your familiarity has created your own field of vision so that the raw root of what something is can be lost in the process. Let me give you an example. Since the time of Jesus, Christians have been gathering and saying the Lord's Prayer. You ever say it? You ever say it in church? You ever say it and not even know what happened the minute that you just said it? Right, You go on autopilot, you are so familiar with it that you have actually become unfamiliar with what it is actually saying and how profound and provocative Jesus is actually calling you to pray not only what for, but in contrary to what you would normally pray for. The familiarity with it breeds an unfamiliarity. Are you with me? And I find that so often for those who have walked the way of Christ, we come across these metaphors, these images, these verses in these passages, and we get such a base familiarity with them that they become fundamentally unfamiliar. I believe that 1 Corinthians 12 is one of these. Where Paul talks about the body of Christ. We talk about the body of Christ so casually, so freely, so just matter of factly, that we don't even think about what Paul is actually saying, and in the process, miss the provocative and profound message the Bible has to bring. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible, to Christianity, to Christian metaphors, if you will. I got good news for you. Today will be a day of discovery. But for those of you who are overly familiar with it, especially to the point that it becomes dismissive, what I want to do today is help you rethink this metaphor of Christ and his body. I want you to radically rethink it today. I want you to rediscover it today. I want you to think of yourself, your life, your church, spirituality, what Paul is saying in this chapter differently by becoming familiarized again with something that may have become too familiar to you. Now, let me set it up. Growing up, I loved monsters, all right? I remember early on, before I was even in school, some of my earliest memories, actually, were going to my grandma's house. And when we'd go to my grandma's house, we'd watch Son of Spangoolie, all right? And we would go to my grandma's house every single day. Week. And so in my childhood, I was exposed to and got to see everything from like Creature of the Black Lagoon to the classic Bella Lugosi to things like Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. All the black and white classics. All right. It didn't stop there. My dad showed me the movie Exorcist when I was nine years old. I stopped sleeping with my mom about five years ago because of that. (laughs) She was elated about that swift move on his part. And maybe all of this speaks to my psyche, but there it is. Now, among all the classic monsters, Dracula, by far the top, and I will fight you over it, all right? (laughs) The absolute best of all the monsters, he was the coolest for me. Of course, it was bolstered by things in my childhood like the Count on Sesame Street and that kid's candy that poses to be cereal, Count Chocula and, you know, things like that that built behind it. By the way, I was talking to Steve about this earlier and uh, anyone ever like, you know, were you Count Chocula people? You know what he said of the one he liked was? Was Frankenberry? Just, <laughs> ew. Ew. So wrong, man. Thought I knew you. It wasn't until later that I started to appreciate a monster I never cared for when I was early on, but more. Frankenstein, or better put, Frankenstein's monster. I'm going to assume a certain level of familiarity here today, but I don't want to take too much license, so let me briefly explain the story and the history and the essence of it to you. Go back with me to about 1816. You have this young woman, her name is Mary Shelley. And she's gathered together with her husband Percy and Lord Byron of poetry fame. And they're gathering together and they kind of like laid down a contest. Who can write the best monster story? Mary Shelley goes to work. She spends the next few days thinking about this, and out of it births this story about a mad genius scientist who is bent on creating life. And so what this scientist proceeds to do is go about harvesting different parts of different decomposed bodies, from different graves, and patching them together and through his mad science, bringing life into this creature that he creates at all costs. It's become a classic story about the hubris of human achievement and the dangers of when men try to be God. Any of you have seen that classic Boris Karloff version which is still the best you might have some of the iconic images full well here's a little scene that I want to show you today that I think captures the essence of it let's roll <laughs> It's alive. it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. You remember it? Anyone ever here ever see it? You know, it's uh it's interesting because when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, and again Frankenstein is the scientist, Dr. Frankenstein, not the monster. All right? When she wrote it, she actually wrote it by the shores of Lake Geneva in what was called the Summer of Gloom, a time when Europe was experiencing absolutely no sunshine, cold weather, and rain for like the entire season straight, a lot like our past spring, would you agree? (laughs) Too much of that births things like these. But you know, I think about that story that she wrote, and if you've never read the book, I really encourage you to do so. Because it's, an, it's a twist. It's an incredible twist on an illustration Paul makes about true spirituality, that Paul uses to help us explain true spirituality and what it means to be connected to Christ or be a part of his body. Let me read this to you. From 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it begins like this. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Let me continue on. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they, were not all, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. He goes on, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable and the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that we believe are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment at all. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of, Of it. Hear what it says again. You are the body of Christ. And just in case that metaphor has become too familiar that you are missing the impact of what Paul is saying, let me break it down for you. What he does is he's talking about a human body. When Paul says you are the body of Christ, he is not talking about a body of water, a legislative body, or the way that we talk about an organization or a group. Certainly it is being applied to us as an organization or a group, but don't miss the metaphor. He is talking about an actual human body. It is not genericized. That is the metaphor. Can you get a human body in your mind? Paul goes on to say, You are a part of it. Older translations and their next of kin will say, You are a member. Of it, But when it talks about being a member, it is not talking about being like a unit or some kind of genericized person who belongs to some organization as we think of membership today. No, a member is a part, a piece, like the word dismembered, if you will. When he says you are a part or a member, he means you are a body part or a member attached to a body. I remember in eighth grade, giving my first stab at writing real horror. We had to do it for an English class. And I remember turning it in and giving it what I thought was amazing. And we would meet one-to-one with our English teacher who would then debrief it with us. And I remember him looking at me, and I remember it to this day, him going, is this supposed to be funny? And he could see like the look on my face because I thought I was writing some serious next-level stuff here. It's like, Dave, Dave, no, you've got to write about like, dismembered bodies. You've got to write about hanging, dripping members, hanging in a meat locker somewhere. This is the best of Lutheran education right here for you. Can you get that image of hanging dripping members, members of the body because that's what Paul is talking about. Hands and feet and heads and eyes and ears and arms and legs, parts of a body. Elsewhere, Paul will write about Jesus being a head, the head. But again, unless your overfamiliarity leads you to mean, well, that means he's the chief of an organization or he's at the top of the pack. Do not lose the metaphor. He is talking about a human head. Jesus is this as a part of this. And as this, Jesus directs where we go and is the face and representation of who we are. And in First Corinthians 12, Paul then says, "You are parts of it. You are body parts sewn in to this head to make a body." The entire thrust of First Corinthians 12 is that that is what we are. An amalgamated assortment of body parts fused to Jesus, deriving our life from him. We are God's monster. I want to show you a picture today. And I actually had a moment of pause with this. But I talked to some trusted people and I want to show it. And I want to explain it. And I want you to radically rethink what Paul is talking about here. The picture you see on the right, of course, is the classic Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. The picture you see on the left, if you're unfamiliar, is the Shroud of Turin. For those of you who don't know what the Shroud of Turin is, it's an ancient relic from the 12th century of the Middle Ages that purports to be the burial cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head when he was laid in the tomb after his crucifixion. We are well before the era of photoshopping here, and yet there's a lot of controversy over the shroud. There's a lot of debate, a lot of suspicion of fraud. I'm not here to go down that debate. What I am here to say is that there is an uncanny resemblance to me between this purported picture of Jesus on the left or image of Jesus on the left and what we see on the right. I hesitated here today because I don't in any way ever want to bring disrespect to Christ or his name. What I am not interested in doing is turning Jesus into a punchline. What I am interested in doing is helping you understand what the Bible is actually saying and just how Potent. this metaphor of the body that Christ or Paul is using happens to be. Let me share some insights with you today. If you think of yourself as something other than a dead and decomposing body part, you may be thinking too highly of yourself. The New Testament is absolutely clear that we as people are spiritually dead. We are dead in our sins. Jesus will say, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if Paul uses the metaphor that we are body parts, what happens when a part of the body is severed from the body? It's dead. I think of people who pick flowers. I think of a funeral we had here just this past week. Beautiful flowers that were brought in, not these silk fake things, not these little plastic fake things. They look so beautiful, don't they, when you pick them and put them in a vase? And in the moment, if they could think, I bet they even wonder if they could do it on their own. Look at how I blossom and thrive. And yet we all know no matter how much food you pump into it, no matter how much water you give it, it is only matter of time until it withers and dies. If you are a body part, then you are a decomposed dying one. And to think of yourself as something more may be indicative of thinking of yourself more highly than you ought because we are dead in our sins. But I've got good news for you. God is fundamentally a grave robber. And he goes from grave to grave, unearthing the disgusting and the vile to sow into his new body and infuse with life again. Second, if you think of yourself only as a decomposed dead body part, you are underestimating what God is doing in you. Because fundamentally, God brings dead things to life. The apex of the Christian religion is a dead man coming back to life. And not some grotesque zombie undead monster haunting the wilderness. Alive, more alive than you and I happen to be. And the fullness of life stronger than death. Glorified as God intended humanity to be. The Spirit is a giver of life. Do you want to understand the Spirit of God today? Then notice fundamentally what He does is bring life. Life in the body, through the body, connected to Jesus as that head. I think of that great passage from Ezekiel chapter 37 where the prophet Ezekiel is brought out to a valley of an ancient and past war and he surveys the valley that is filled with dead man's bones and the spirit of God, the angel of God says to him, Ezekiel, do you think that God can bring these bones to life? And Ezekiel says what all of us says when we don't want to answer God, well, you know what he can do. And in this ancient story, we see the spirit of God come across this valley of dead, rotting, dried out bones. And it describes sinew and ligament coming together, reunited, coming back to life again. God is a life bringer. God brings life The Holy Spirit brings life. No matter how dead you are, decomposed you are, rotten to the core, and vile you are, no matter how many years you have been buried under the earth in the grave, God has the power to bring you to life. God wants to bring you to life. And God will leave no grave unearthed if you try to live separate from the body you're missing the point of it all if you try to find spiritual life apart from the body you've missed the point of it all I want to share a quote with you it's from a guy named uh, Ignatius he was a pastor or, or bishop as he's classically called of of a major city in the ancient Roman world called Antioch. Guy was a major player. He had street cred. And here's why the guy has street cred to me. Not because he led some famous, illustrious career, not because he was even known outside of Antioch until in his 80s, but he would not renounce Christ or his body. Under pain of death and torture, as an 80-year-old man, he would not renounce him. And he writes a series of letters as Roman soldiers are guiding him from Antioch to Rome to face his tribunal and execution. And as they would stop in these cities along the way, he would write to these churches to encourage them. There's one letter he writes to the city of Ephesus. Similar to Ephesians, that you'll find in the New Testament. And there's a quote out of there that I want to share. Look at what he says Whoever does not meet with the congregation thereby de- demonstrates his arrogance and has separated himself. For it is written, God opposes the arrogant. My experience with spirituality today is everyone does it on their own. Everyone wants it on their own. Everyone thinks about it on their own. My experience is that there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians in this regard. That churches at best become collocations or places, like restaurants, where anonymous human beings come to eat from a similar menu without any interaction, dependency, or relationship with each other. I am overstating the point to be sure. How many do you know in the Fellowship of Faith body? And how many are you doing life with? How dependent do you feel on the body, not me, for the deep richness of your spirituality? How dependent do you feel on it for your spiritual life? Did you just answer the own question? I'm struck by what Ignatius says. It speaks to me. As one who stands here before you is a hypocrite in this regard as well. That whoever does not meet with the congregation demonstrates his arrogance. You know what's easier? Life without the body. One of the greatest theological words or phrases that I've ever heard, one of the greatest theological teachings I've ever come across can be summarized in two words, and this is how it was said with, to me. Ready? People suck. and any length of time with the body proves it to be true. Life together is hard. It is messy. People are short-sighted. People are petty. People are self-serving. People are easily angered. People keep records of wrong. People are motivated by pride and by envy. People are not patient. I don't need to prove these things to you. It's hard enough with our own families at times, let alone gathering together. And so we see the great move of 21st century Christian spirituality of doing faith on my own. The ancient propitians of the faith have something different to say. That it might demonstrate something else instead. Arrogance. That I'm above your petty squabbles. That I don't have time to invest in you. That I have better things to do than walk alongside of you. What other word can you give that? except arrogance. Now, to be sure, what Paul is talking about here or Ignatius is talking about here doesn't always relate to a specific local gathering or body. Sometimes it is important for a variety of reasons to move from one local church body to another. But caution yourself... Yet let's allow it for a moment. But often in my experience, people who do that kind of thing never connect somewhere else. And it leads me to question, does your separation from the body say more about the body or more about you? Four. life is found in the body of Christ. Everything else is a monster. I think we all have this intuitive sense of the spiritual power of being together and what God's spirit does in us collectively as opposed to individually. And people since the dawn of time have been gathering around various interests, various positions, various platforms, various values, striking to find a solidarity and new identity. God is creating a new humanity. And anything else except the body of Christ is at best a cheap substitute, and at worst, a monster. It is a cheap vandalism of what God has intended to be and how God has intended to work with his spirit among a people collectively. And the message of Paul in this metaphor is that true humanity is found when you are connected to Christ as a part of him, a part of his body. And five, sadly, sometimes, the church really looks like a monster, too. It tries to fit into society. It tries to be relevant. It tries to identify and meet and, and connect with people, but oftentimes it just comes across at best being weird. And at worst, an object of derision, of horror. And scorn, I think of those Frankenstein movies and I think of the classic book, how the monster would go about tumbling through the countryside and people would run in fear. I think about sometimes how it wouldn't realize its own strength. Remember that classic scene? He's pushing the kid on the swing. And the little girl goes flying. Jesus says it himself, it should be of no surprise that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they gathered with torches in pitchforks against me, so they will against you. And sadly, sometimes it's deserved because sometimes this body of Christ can act more like a monster than the new humanity. God has created it. To be. Now, I want to recap what I've read to you today. I want to recap it to you in a different translation, the message. I like how it puts it today. After taking this journey this morning, see if you can see with new eyes the significance of the metaphor that Paul is sharing with you. Paul writes, you can easily enough see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells. But no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we are, we are, we are all part of that body and have said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he has the final say in everything. That is what we proclaimed in word and action when we were baptized. Each of us is now a part of his resurrection body refreshed and sustained at one fountain his spirit where we all come to drink the old labels we once used to identify ourselves labels like jew or greek slave or free or any others that you might add are no longer useful we need something larger more comprehensive I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If foot said, I'm not elegant like hand, embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to the body. Would that make it so? If ear said, I'm not beautiful like eye, limpid and expressive, I don't deserve a place on the head. Would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear. How could it smell? As it is, what we see is that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But then he says this, but I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. I like this line, and I'm gonna put it up here. "An An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, and each is proper sized and in its proper place. No part is more important on its own. Can you imagine eye telling hand, get lost, I don't need you? Or head telling foot, you're fired, your job has been phased out? As a matter of fact, in practice it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic and more necessary. You can live without an eye, but not without a stomach. Right? You can live without an eye, but not without a stomach. He goes on and he says this. If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? The way God designs our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into its exuberance. How do you be a part of this body of Christ? Paul writes it earlier and I'm going to flash back. Here it is. Just as a body, though one has many parts, so are we in Christ. For all who are baptized by Christ, by one Spirit, form that body. Baptized, it means immerse. Those who have been baptized into Christ, immersed into Christ, to be in Christ is to be a part of that body to discover that new humanity, to discover the power of God's spirit in a way that can never individually be accepted or understood on its own. I want to close today by sharing with you one final thing. It's an article I read from the uh, Babylon Bee. Read it for yourself. Local man disappointed to learn he's the appendix in the body of Christ. Duluth, Minnesota. Local man Bill Mitchell was deeply dismayed to discover this past weekend that in the body of Christ, he is actually the appendix. Yeesh, I would have taken toe, elbow. Heck, just let me be an eyebrow, said a gloomy Mr. Mitchell. I know the Bible says a foot isn't supposed to want to be a hand, but that we're all supposed to be happy with the role God has given us, but appendix? Appendix? Literally named for being useless? What a letdown. Friends tried to reassure Mr. Mitchell that someday scientists will likely discover that the appendix has some actual function, and it's probably super vital. One of his friends then went to the hospital with horrible abdominal pain and was reassured repeatedly that it was all caused by his appendix, which served absolutely no other function, and he wouldn't notice when it was gone. At publishing time, Mr. Mitchell had decided to volunteer for church parking lot duty in hopes of graduating to gallbladder. <laughs> Some of you, I think, think you're worthless. That you don't matter. That you're not important. That you suffer in isolation. God has something very very different to say no matter how insignificant you might feel you are part of something bigger more wonderful and filled with life than anyone can imagine Welcome to the body of Christ. Today we commune. It was an ancient expression in the earliest Christian movement of unity, of what it means to be a body together. As we come and take it today, I encourage you to come with that in mind. How is this something more than just a spiritual hit for me? But how is this an expression of what God's Spirit is doing among us collectively? What does it mean for me to love for, to live for something bigger than myself as part of something bigger than myself more important than myself what does it mean to be a part of the body of christ